0: The K-pop podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out the Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. row Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to K-pop. Joanne Lipman is the author of That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. In this era of Me Too, the former editor-in-chief of USA Today addresses why the moment is right to talk fundamentals.
0: The reason there has been this explosion of frustration and outrage has, isn't because every woman has been sexually assaulted at work, but it is because every woman knows what it feels like to be marginalized to be not taken seriously.
1: Joanne Lipman and I talk about the tense environment between men and women in the workplace, how diversity training made things worse, what women do to be seen as equal in a so-called man's world. And you can hear what she did when a man she was interviewing for a story stripped down to his underwear in his office right now. Joanne Lipman, thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. The perfect place to start this conversation is where you start the book. And that is the conversation you had with, just a casual conversation with a guy on a plane. Yes, yes. So
0: the genesis of the book was actually a flight to Des Moines, Iowa. And um, I was on my way to speak at a women's conference and sitting next to this lovely businessman, we struck up a conversation. He's telling me about his new house in Westchester and his kids and their sports teams. And it couldn't have been nicer. We're drinking our little plastic cups of wine. And then he says, why are you going to Des Moines? And I tell him to go speak at a women's conference. And suddenly this lovely man totally freezes. He gets that sort of deer in the headlights look, and he goes, sorry, I'm a man. (laughs) 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 And then he proceeds to tell me that he had just gone through diversity training at his bank and how awful it was. And it was two days of getting beaten up and feeling like it was being put in the corner by the principal. And he said that basically the message that he and the other men, primarily who were taking this diversity training, came out with was, it's all your fault. And it really st- uh, it stuck with me because, you know, I've heard this throughout my life. I've seen it like men sort of freeze up when the topic of gender or gender equality, God forbid, comes up. Um, And so the next day, uh, I was speaking to this ballroom full of women about the issues that we face at work, things that are common to every woman being overlooked, marginalized, interrupted, not taken seriously. And I'm watching a ballroom full of heads of women nodding up and down. And I just stopped in the middle of a sentence. And I said, you know what? We all know this. We really need men in the room to hear this as well. And so I went back and I wrote an article actually that appeared in the Wall Street Journal. It was called Women at Work, a Guide for Men that went viral. And, um, you know, that in turn led to that's what she said. And so for the past three years, I've been working on that's what she said. I crisscrossed the country and I really went in search primarily of men who were trying to close the gender gap because my feeling is that women talk amongst ourselves an awful lot about all of these issues, but we're not talking to men. And so, to me, that is half of a conversation and at best gets us to 50% of a solution. We really need men to join the conversation.
1: Okay, so you've traveled across the country, but, I mean, how many men did you meet who actually get it?
0: You know, there's a surprise. Do they exist? They do exist. I'm sitting across from one right now. (laughs) Um, thank you. They, they do exist. They, are you know, it took me a few years to find them. I will say that. <laughs> um, but, uh, but there are a surprising number of men. And I think there are many, many, many more men who would like to be part of the solution if they had a roadmap. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. And in fact, Catalyst, which is the nonprofit that researches working women looked into this, they actually did a survey of senior executive men. And they asked the question, what would be a barrier to you championing equality in the workplace? And 51% of them actually said lack of awareness of what exactly those issues are that women face, but 74% cited fear, and their fear was partly of loss of status among other men, and partly it was fear of saying the wrong thing. And so if we can get over that, I think that there are a lot of men who would be willing to be part of the solution.
1: All right. I want to get to this fear of the loss of status thing later on because that gets to a a bigger thing. Mm -hmm. But how is it possible that 51 percent of men don't know what the issues are? Is it that they are willfully blind? Is it that they've been in such a power position for so long that they have had the privilege of being able of, of not having to care?
0: I think it's a combination of both of those things um, that they haven't had to care. um, And I think there are are some that are willfully blind. uh, But I also think that there are men who are just afraid that they will say the wrong thing because it's not their experience. Um, And I think that's true for any underrepresented group. I think that's probably true if you're um, white and you're talking to a group of all African-American friends, you feel a little bit constrained.
1: Oh yeah, that's fraught.
0: Right? (laughs) If you're a straight person and you're talking to all of your gay friends, you may feel like I don't oh, yeah. have I don't have something to say here, and I think that that's true for men too. When they're in a mixed group, mixed gender group, they feel a little bit uncomfortable. Like, what if I say the wrong thing? And one of the things that I hope to achieve with that's what she said is to do away with the fear. Let's eliminate the fear factor, um, because. Frankly, if you're in a mixed group and you're a man, feel free to, like, talk about it, ask questions, show your curiosity. And, and for the most part, first of all, women are not going to bite your head off, despite what you think. <laughs> <laughs> we actually want to engage in this conversation. Um and, you know, and, and secondly, it doesn't hurt to ask, right? It never hurts to engage and ask the question.
1: Okay, so... Um I hear you when you say, you know, don't be afraid to ask, just ask the question we want you to ask, because when it comes to race, I've always been saying, until we get to the point where where people can just feel comfortable enough to ask the uncomfortable question and not question the motives of the other person, we're never going to get anywhere. So when it comes to the, the, the conversation of men and women, is it possible for men to ask a stupid question and not get his head bitten off by someone who is maybe presuming that the person, the man asking the question has bad motives or bad intentions.
0: Right, right. So I think that that's always a possibility, but I think that the more likely scenario is one that is acceptance and understanding. Um, I will give you an example because this is really, since the Me Too movement happened and has really... Blown up, we've, we've really seen that it's become discussable among in mixed company. Now, you do see men who are afraid. So, as a for instance, a couple of weeks ago, I was meeting a male friend, business friend, in a bar um, for a drink. And I walk into this restaurant and he uh, gives me a hug. And then he immediately pulls back and he says, Uh oh, is that still okay? And I laughed and I said, yes, we've known each other for 15 years. Of course, it's fine. But here's the thing. I was not offended at all that he asked because it was fine with me, but maybe it's not fine for the next person. And secondly, by the way, he'll never have to ask that again. He knows I'm a hugger. It's okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, well, here, the the question in terms of fear of men being afraid of saying the wrong thing, and this goes back to the conversation you had with the man on the plane and the diversity training and diversity training way back when was basically taking a two by four to people to really like club it into them that ways of speaking, ways of being were wrong. And could that play into the fear that, in this particular instance, men asking women questions or men talking to women, they're afraid because, well, they've been through diversity training and they've been beaten into <laughs> into fear.
0: And you're 100 percent right about diversity training. First of all, it's backfired. Um, there is a Harvard professor who studied 30 years of diversity training at more than 700 companies. And he found that for women, as well as for African-American men and women, for those two groups, it actually made things worse. In other words, those groups would have advanced further in the workplace had there been no training at all. And there were a variety of reasons for that. But one of the reasons was that the men, primarily white men, felt like they were beaten up, and they were really, they were resistant because they felt like they were being punished, and in a sense, they were. You're not wrong about the 2 by 4 I talked to a veteran diversity trainer who literally said to me, yeah, when we started, that's how we did it. We would beat men up with a 2x4 over the head, and if they cried, all the better,
1: Right. When I read that <laughs> line, I was like, wow, just sitting there waiting for a tear to know that they've, that they've achieved their goal.
0: Right. But, you know, that's because if you think about the genesis of diversity training, it primarily grew out of legal compliance. There were a whole bunch of lawsuits before your time and mine in the 70s, um, primarily women saying that, you know, who, who couldn't, um, you know, the women of Newsweek and women and other organizations. Um, and because of these lawsuits, diversity training came up and, and the diversity training truly was— Punishment, and it was about legal compliance.
1: Okay, so since you've mentioned several times now uh, African Americans, when you read your book, if you are from, and I'm black and gay, and as I'm reading the book, I hear things and see things that I relate to. Even though this is a conversation about men and and women, I see things that are applicable to me as an African American. I see things that are applicable to me as a gay man. In writing about men and women, did you then discover through your reporting and the writing that what you were writing was something that could go, that could ricochet to, through all sorts of communities?
0: Yes, a hundred percent. And I did that with, with that in mind. The book is, um, you know, it, it's, that's what she said. It's about women. But so much of the research that I cite um, was done not just on women but on other underrepresented groups. And, and I write in the book also about, you know, the double bind of women, uh, you know, women who belong to one other rep- underrepresented group. Um, but it also applies to men, to anyone who is in a group that is not the majority, that is not the majority white male power structure. So I've heard from so many people, including, by the way, introverted men who feel like these findings apply to them as well. But um, uh, certainly to, um, you know, ethnic, racial, sexuality, like any sort of group that's not represented, because the research is pretty clear that if you in whatever group you are represent less than maybe a third or so in a room, your voice isn't really heard. And that is an experience that so many of us can relate to.
1: That was the thirty. There's a group called the thirty percent.
0: Thirty percent club. Club. Mm -hmm. That was started out of the UK by a banker named Helena Morrissey, and um, it's now spread to about eight countries, including the United States. And the idea behind that is that um, to encourage companies to have at least thirty percent representation of women on boards. And there are several countries that actually um, have laws requiring 30 percent female representation on boards.
1: So we are now to the point of that question that I was going to ask, but not reveal to you until now. <laughs> and, and you hit on it when you talked about the white male power structure how this book resonates with people who are not a part of that white male power structure. And in several places here, from that Catalyst survey that you mentioned, where you fear of a loss of status, um, to this quote here from um, John Allen, the chairman of the British supermarket giant Tesco PLC, complained that white men are, quote, an endangered species on, on British corporate boards. How much of any of these conversations, from the one you, you're having in this book to Latin, uh, the Latino community, the African-American community, the LGBTQ community, how much of the struggle now is the fight between people who, who want to be a part of the party and – the people who have been who have been throwing the party who don't want to give up any seats at the table to others who have worked their butts off to be a part of the party. And yet they keep being pushed out.
0: Right. Well, certainly there's that power struggle that's going on without question. Um, But, you know, there's also we're we're in a moment now, I think, where that where there is now a, a push and pull there. And that's the Me Too movement, I think, is a reflection of that. You know, if you look at the Me Too movement, it started, um, it, it gained power, I should say, after the revelations about Harvey Weinstein and then other very, very high-profile men. And I think there's a, a misperception, particularly among some men who I've spoken to, that it's really just about these predators, these few bad apples, and that if you can cut them out, everything else is fine. That's not the case at all. The reason there has been this explosion of frustration and outrage has isn't because every woman has been sexually assaulted at work, but it is because every woman knows what it feels like to be marginalized, to be not taken seriously, um, had to have all of these, you know, we experience throughout the day, um, and I think this goes for other underrepresented groups as, as well, just... Just you know, hundreds of these sort of small little indignities, things that we need to to deal with, to to um, you know, we the things that we have to do to kind of get through the day because we are working in a structure that was created by men for men. Um, so uh, so what we are seeing is something of a power struggle. And by the way, men, there's also the research, and I talk about this, and that's what she said. That anyone who acts outside of sort of accepted norms of behavior, of the stereotypical behavior, does get punished for it. And that goes for men as well as women. So I talk about some men, um, like, uh, for example, Bob Moritz, who's the CEO of PwC, the big um, consulting firm. And he wrote a LinkedIn post about the importance of diversity. And he was attacked by other men for doing so. And, and so because he stepped out of his expected role. Um, and there's also a reason why, you know, women in power, the higher they rise in power, the, the less like they are, the more likely they are being uh, they are to be called things like abrasive and unlikable.
1: Uh, yes, as we saw in the 2016 presidential election.
0: Right, right. Also, anger plays a really interesting role. So I cite research, and that's what she said, about what happens if a man or a woman is angry. When a man is angry, it is um, considered to be for cause, and it actually helps him gain respect. When a woman is angry, uh, she loses respect because she is seen as emotional and irrational. And we saw that play out in the 2016 election where where Donald Trump actually played on his anger and he would go out in every debate and say, yes, I'm angry. I'm angry because this country is a mess. Um, But then, then Hillary Clinton would get criticized for sounding angry. And even straight mainstream news organizations would describe things like her wagging her crooked finger in a debate. Things that were severely, you know, sort of gender stereotypical.
1: You have a thing in here where it's a comment from a Wall Street Journal reader. He writes, Ladies, parentheses, women, gals, hell, I don't know. You need to man up if you want to succeed in a man's world. And he wrote this after you suggested an article that men try to better understand, they read to better understand um, women. And then you go on and talk about all of the ways women have manned up to try to be seen as equal in a quote unquote man's world. Walk, walk through those, and I can help you since I've got the book right here. In case you, you get a excellent. There, there brain are a,
0: there's a like a hundred or more things we do <laughs> every things. single day, like every hour we're doing things. So, um, for starters. Um, I have worn high heels my entire working life, and I find now that I had a reason, I didn't realize it, but taller women make 8% more than shorter women. Um, we do things like, I spoke to innumerable women who do things like hire an acting coach or, um, to try and lower the sound of their voices or to lose a Southern accent, which is seen as, as feminine and soft, um, If you look at women in power, this was really interesting to me. So 5% of of the American Caucasian population is blonde. If you look at female CEOs and female Congresswomen, it's closer to 50%. And the theory behind that is because these women are very powerful, so to make themselves palatable, the blonde hair is supposed to make them seem more youthful and less threatening. We change our speech patterns. Women and men have different speech patterns that go way back to childhood, where little girls learn to play by cooperating, collaborating with one another. Little boys learn to play with one another with games where there's a winner and a loser. And fast forward to adulthood, and that comes out in these speech patterns where women use all of this hedging language. This is like... I hope you don't mind if I'm not bothering you. And, and also, we apologize all the time, and we are not sorry. <laughs> and, but we're aware of these, all of these speech tics, and we know that men to men, they appear weak. And so we try really hard to change our own speech patterns. Um, and in fact, um, the, there are women who have now sorry jars, on their desk. There's a Google extension that underlines hedging language for women.
1: In whoa, well, it when you're writing when you're emails writing email. or, or on Google Docs, you can get the little underneath yes. your word.
0: Yes, as if it's misspelled. Um, and this was really interesting. So I I never thought I was one of those people. I mean I've I've tried very, very hard not to do up speak, which is another thing that women do. Like we've heard it a thousand times, right? A man and a woman are in a car and the woman says shouldn't we be turning left instead of right? And you know what she actually means is you're going the wrong way. Um, so we try really hard to, to, to change our own speech patterns. And this was a, a fascinating data point for me was you and I were on the radio mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And, um, and I got an email afterward from an old college friend who said, I heard you on the radio, but it took me a few minutes to recognize that it was you because your voice is lower now. And I thought, wow, that's years of, you know, being in a man's world and trying to seem more authoritative. Um, But it's fascinating because it's something I didn't even realize I'm doing.
1: And there's another thing called uh, uh, posing. What's this posing thing? Power posing. Power posing.
0: There is an academic named Ann Cuddy who came up with this concept of power posing that a lot of women do, which is to change your body in a way. So like hands on your hips or putting your feet up. Um, and you change the, the stature of your body, and basically it makes you seem more masculine, but it literally um, increases the amount of testosterone in your body, and, um, and women do it to appear more confident to men and to appear larger than they really are to men. So we make these thousand adjustments all day long, you know, many of which we're not even realizing, some of which are very conscious, which is, you know, do we talk about, like, I've got a sick kid at home, right? So, um, but we're doing this all day long to fit in with the world of men. And But what I was really intrigued by in, in researching that's what she said, is I discovered these men who are now reaching back, right? So we need both sides. It isn't just women leaning in. We need men to reach across the divide also so that we can meet somewhere in the middle there.
1: Um, can we talk about some of the things that men do where you were at an event i think it was a, at the waldorf or, or somewhere it was all women and one of the men gets up there and this big wall street type guy and says you know i'm i'm intimidated being yes. in this room filled with women Talk about that.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I've seen this now several times where you go to a women's event and there is a man talking. And the one you're talking about was actually at um, a thirty percent club event, and it was the it was the CEO of Lazard, big investment firm. I mean,
1: Lazard. Right. I mean, that's like the Coca Cola of uh, the finance and legal stuff, everything.
0: Right. And it was sort of like his little joke before he began his speech. Oh, I'm intimidated. I'm in a room full of women. And, you know, the irony was not lost on me or anybody else in that room. I mean, there was no woman in the world who would get up in front of a room full of men, which any woman in leadership has done. I've been in plenty of rooms where, like, I am the only or one of the very few women. The only one. You would never get up. And, you know, nor would you, right? You wouldn't get up and say, oh, my God, I'm so intimidated by this Group of white, powerful men <laughs> like, who would do that. So, so the fact that it can be sort of like a ha ha joke and, a, and I've seen it multiple times. There is a I've seen it. There is an annual women in communications luncheon um, that honors women in communications. And it's a ballroom full of women. And whoever whatever man is there will always get up and say, oh, it's not often I represent diversity. Ha ha ha. Right. And it's right. And I joke. know that
1: luncheon. And I've always been a little upset because I've never been invited because it always looks great. It's like all my friends are there. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. I'll invite you. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of the interruption, I want to get into the ti- you you have in the back of the book, the cheat sheet tips and takeaways for men and women. And the number one uh, tip is interrupt the interrupters.
0: Yes. So women are interrupted three times more frequently than men. And Northwestern even did a study of Supreme Court justices and found that the female Supreme Court justices are interrupted three times more frequently than the male Supreme Court justices. So it has nothing to do with sort of how powerful you are. It's just that you're female. So, um, you know, as I said, I, I talked to lots of men in particular who are trying to reach across that gender divide, and one of the primary strategies they talked about was interrupting the, the interruptors. So, great example, Glenn Mazzara, who is a very successful TV producer. He was executive producer of The Walking Dead, and he was producer of The Shield. And, and he was telling me, you know, when he was working on The Shield... First of all, he wanted women in the writer's room, and it's really hard to get women because the agents, he, he, he said he kept asking he send me women writers, and they kept sending him white guys instead. And he finally got a couple of women in the room, and he said, but none of their ideas were getting through. They were failing. And so it said, he said it took him too long to realize, but it suddenly struck him that every time they tried to pitch an idea that the male writers in the room would interrupt them. So he created a new rule, new rule. Whoever's pitching an idea, you cannot interrupt them. When they're finished, you can tear them apart. You can make them cry. That's fine. (laughs) But not until then. And it changed everything about the dynamics of that room and whose ideas were heard and whose ideas were accepted. Um, And I've talked to other executives who do the same thing or if there's not a no interruptions rule they will go back and say hey wait a second you know mia had this really interesting idea why don't we why don't we let mia finish
1: and that that requires that boss and in this case that man to be mindful of of the dynamics that that are at play that are silencing people in the room
0: yes and so much of what we're talking about is unconscious bias right we we don't see quite as much of the really overt madman sexism in the room but there's a ton of this unconscious bias that both men and women have that, you know, and as Glenn Mazzara said, like he, he was more attuned to the male voice. It took him a little while. So awareness is key to so many of these issues. And once you're aware, you can take steps to counteract it. Uh, you know, another example of that is an every woman I know ever I've yet to meet a woman who has not had this experience where you say something that you think is kind of intelligent in, in a room and it's, crickets. It's like nobody has heard you. And then two minutes later, some guy repeats your exact idea. And suddenly it's like, oh, my gosh, Bob, what a great idea, Bob, you're a genius. And every woman in that room is like shaking their head saying, wait a second, that's what that's what she said, which is where the title of the book comes from. Right? <laughs> yes, it's happened to all of us. And but Again, awareness is the best um, disinfectant, right? Right. So once you're aware of it, you can do something about that. And, and I did talk to several executives who said once they became aware of it, this is men, who said once they became aware of it, they, then they became, then they were on the lookout for it. So they would then say to Bob, you know, thank you, Bob, but let's have Olivia actually elaborate on that since it was her idea.
1: Oh my God. <laughs> now, to your point about Glenn Mazzara saying to, to the recruiters, bring me bring me women candidates and always being sent white guys, you have as your third tip. Diversify the interviewers, not just the applicants, which I thought was very interesting.
0: Yeah, that was something. It actually changed the way I manage as well. I've been a manager for for a long time, and and you know I think a lot of managers now know that you should have a diverse slate of candidates. Though, frankly, not all. I mean, I I really believe there should be a Rooney rule for all hiring, a Rooney rule which is comes Rooney rule comes out of
1: Football. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the football thing. Well yes, yes. (laughs) I gotcha, I gotcha. Where
0: where you must have a diverse slate of candidates Candidates, for any job, right? It is a football thing. So um so, uh, but I believe there should be that rule for interviewers. So when when I talked to the, the again, these successful men, they said to me, we already had this rule for candidates for, you know, we know you're supposed to have a diverse slate of candidates. But the fact is, if you don't have diverse interviewers, if you only have a bunch of white guys doing the interviewing, you will still not get the optimal result. You, they're not going to pick these candidates who are foreign to them, you know, someone who doesn't fit into their group. They're they're much more likely people go for people who remind them of themselves. And so you really need a diverse group of interviewers. And that changed the way I manage as I was was reporting the book to make sure that when I had openings that I would have people who Represented diverse groups, you know, just in gender and ethnicity and age, even just to make sure that we had a good, well-rounded um, uh, picture of mm-hmm. the candidates.
1: You know, one of the things that I and uh, particularly my my black friends, we talk about the, the this thing about, oh, well, there weren't enough. There weren't enough. We couldn't find anyone. We couldn't find any candidates. We, and we're all like, that's bullshit. Yes. That, there are so many people out there qualified people is just that you're not looking in the right places and maybe that's because the interviewers aren't diverse themselves.
0: That's right. That's right. There's the there's this theory the pipeline theory which is the pipeline theory is if we get enough people in at the entry level, that they will work their way up, and that then we will have representation. But think about that. Think about if that were the case, right? So women started to become half of all college grads. They're now far more than half of undergraduate. Um, they earn more than half of graduate degree, undergraduate degrees. Women for m- more than 30 years have been half of all college students. The average CEO of an American company is 55 years old. If the pipeline theory were true, 50% of CEOs would now be female. The actual number is about 5%. So, uh, clearly, there's a, there's a very leaky pipeline, and that's what we have to address. And I think the issue um, is there's this, un- again, this um, largely unconscious bias, but it impacts us as all along the chain. So, um, women, for example, are 15% less likely than men to be promoted at every single level. There was a really, really interesting computer simulation that Rice University did where they looked at a hypothetical company that was 50-50 male-female at the entry level. And then they programmed in this tiny little 1% bias, almost imperceptible bias, into the program. By the time you get to the top of that company, it's 65% male. So you see how important it is and how tiny little biases can just balloon Mm -hmm. into these incredibly um, huge differences.
1: Unless we think that this is something that happens once people are older. You told me once this particular story, this is on unconscious bias, of grade school kids and math tests. We're talking math tests. Two plus two equals four. What happened in this test?
0: Yes, yes. So this is what's so important for us to understand is that this bias does not start in the workplace. It starts way, 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 way back in childhood and earlier. So it starts at home. Um, The math test example with six-year-olds was uh, boys and girls in a first-grade class were given a math test, and then their names were taken off the papers. And then first-grade teachers graded those tests. When there were no names on the papers, the girls outscored the boys. Then the names were put back on the papers, and this time the boys outscored the girls in math, right? So you would think math is black and white. That's why literally. I said
1: two plus two equals four. How do you get around that? So
0: clearly that the teachers were, you know, giving sort of extra credit or 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 giving the benefit of the doubt to boys in a way that they weren't for girls. It's you and by the way, the teachers were all female. So th- this, it's this unconscious bias, and it starts even before that. So I cite research, and that's what she said, of infants, of parents of infants, mothers of infants routinely overestimate how quickly their sons begin to crawl and underestimate how quickly their baby daughters begin to crawl. And then even if when you go fast forward to two-year-olds, parents of two-year-olds who type into Google... Is my child a genius? (laughs) Something I would do. Um, (laughs) But they're more than twice as likely to do that for a two-year-old boy than a two-year-old girl. So you think about these differences, they start young. By the time you reach college age, a female college student needs to have an A average to be seen as the equivalent of a male college student with a B average. And that goes directly into the workplace, from college to the workplace, And we start out even right out of college with a slight wage gap that then increases geometrically with time.
1: Another tip, tip number nine, don't be afraid of tears, which you have a line here where you say when men are angry, they yell. For women, crying is pretty much the same thing. I never thought of. I never thought of that.
0: Yeah, the, this was one of the more. Or
1: I should ast- say, I never knew that.
0: I, this was one of my more astonishing findings. I have to say, is that so when I when I would interview these men around the country, one of the first questions I would ask is, "What are some things that frustrate or perplex or just confuse you about your female colleagues?" And the overwhelming answer was tears. I am afraid she will cry, and this is really actually quite a dangerous thing because since men have most positions of power. Um, they, uh, they are more likely to go easy on a woman and not give her the feedback she needs to grow. And if you look at performance reviews of men versus women, the women are more likely to get critiqued on personal things, personal attributes, and very often called abrasive, um, which is something that men are almost never called. Um, and, but men and, and women are, are in the language of performance reviewed, uh, v- reviews, it's generally you, um, whereas the language of performance reviews with men is usually we and us, and here are things we can do. So there's a whole, um, uh, there's this fear of sort of how men in power treat women. The fear of tears, though, really surprised me. Um, I do not generally cry at work, though. I am like a puddle at a Hallmark commercial or, <laughs> I mean, beaches, you know, forget about it. Um, but um, but it does turn out that women do, they're biologically cry. They cry more frequently than men. But what men don't understand is that women who do cry at work, it is an expression of anger. Men think they're hurting their, the women's feelings. The women are just pissed off. And so... You have to interpret it differently. The other thing, the other reason I think men are afraid of tears, and this was really, really interesting research. So there's been biological research that shows that when a man as much as smells a woman's tears, it lowers his testosterone level, which can lead to feelings of failure, according to the researchers. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when a woman starts crying or he's afraid she's going to cry, he wants to get the hell away for a variety of reasons. And because he generally is in the senior position of power, it actually ends up hurting the women's careers. <laughs> <laughs> However, oh, man. there's a fix for this. There's a fix for this. So yeah. I did talk to a couple of guys who, who told me that, you know, the, the one guy in particular who's an executive told me that once he understood sort of the the issues behind Tears, and he understood that it was sort of his, you know, it it, it was like a 20,000-year-old impulse (laughs) left Uh over from caveman days that was (laughs) kicking in. And he said once he realized that, it made him um, change the way he managed and that he now reviews his performance reviews and looks at how he talks to and gives feedback to women versus men, and he actually reviews it to make sure that he is doing so equally candidly for both.
1: But did he say anything about if a um, a woman employee cried in front of him? What, What would he do? So
0: he's now now sort of gotten control of the fear. And I guess, you know, he said it it seems to have been effective. You know, he's promoted more women and he has more women in his management group um, because the women are succeeding more. I think there's less reason for the women to cry if they're not angry. angry, That's
1: right. (laughs) 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 Of course. Of course. Um, Your other tip. Yeah, that's not a compliment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That refers to uh, what's called benevolent sexism, which is also, I think, every woman has experienced that compliment that's really not a compliment. Um, And, you know, one of the examples that that I use is something that happened to me um, when I was asked to guest anchor on a television program, and I spent all night the night before prepping for it. And uh, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, I know
1: exactly what you're talking about. Yep.
0: <laughs> and, uh, and the next day, you know, I get through and I'm, and I'm, I'm you know, I feel like I, I did a very credible job. And I get a text from a businessman I know. And in its entirety, it says, you looked mighty cute on TV this morning. And um, I, I really did not know how to respond. And I've actually asked groups of women this, like when I've gone and spoken to groups of women, and I will ask like show of hands, like, should I have said something or should I have, um, should I have just like let it slide? And usually it's about half and half uh, how people feel about that. But I did this once in a group of women and there's only one man in the room and he was the CEO of the company. And, um, and he said, well geez the, the answer to that is really easy the answer is thank you I assume that you mean I sounded smart thank you and you know so there's a way to kind of combat that but mm-hmm. but a lot of women are used to this, this 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 kind of these these you know backhanded compliments
1: something that happened to you Um <laughs> that is still, to my mind, one of the more shocking things, especially in this Me Too movement that we're in. You are a reporter. Um, Just starting out, you go to interview a CEO in his office. What happened?
0: Yeah, this was one of my very first assignments. I was 22, and um, I went to go interview this guy, and he closes the door, he locks the door, and he strips down to his underwear. And I, <laughs> on the one hand, I was really terrified. I uh, This is this was pre-Anita Hill. Anita Hill was in 1991. Right. So this was in the 80s. And, um, and you know, this is a time before sexual harassment was even afraid. I'm not even sure I'd heard of that phrase yet. I knew the phrase rape. And I was afraid that was what was going to happen. Mm. So that was terrifying. But short of that... Um, you know, my feeling was, OK, if I can get out of here unscathed, if he doesn't touch me, I'm fine. Right. That was all I was focused on. So and I didn't want him to rattle me. And so I took out my reporter's pad and I interviewed him in his underwear. And I
1: mean, <laughs> I mean good Lord, keep going. Sorry.
0: So <laughs> I um, and then I went back to my office and I told my ed, the editor of the piece, um, what had happened, and the editor's response was to laugh. He thought it was hilarious. And and his point was, you know, it was like a you-go-girl moment. You're like, you're like earning your stripes, young lady, um, because you held your ground. And it just shows you how different times are in a good way now, right? right. I, I cannot imagine a scenario where that would happen, where the editor in question wouldn't call the police instead of laugh about it. Um
1: and call call the chairman of the board or call the company to get this that, that yeah, guy but, held accountable. Of
0: course, absolutely, absolutely. So so, you know, times have changed in a in a good way from that sense. But what was really fascinating is I, I wrote an op-ed about that um, a month or two ago. And what was really fascinating to me was the response, um, particularly from female reporters. So um, young, younger reporters and editor, younger journalists, um, came up to me and said, oh my gosh, did you get trauma counseling? Do you have PTSD? And, you know, and i like, no, I, none of that. Right. I was like, it was, I was considered, um, an achievement at the time. Um, but one of my, uh, a reporter I know who has been around for a very long time, a woman, um, came up to me and she said, that was hysterical. She says, Who among us has that not happened to? (laughs) Right. So there's a generational divide um, between the expectation and the experience of of people and how they've experienced this harassment.
1: Have you seen that Saturday Night Live skit? of It's like a a roundtable discussion of women in, in film and, of course, Kate McKinnon plays this aged, long-ago yeah. <laughs> actress, and then she's got these two younger actresses who, for whom the world is completely different, and then Kate McKinnon is just saying all of these things that are just so unbelievably sexist right. and the things that misogynistic that she had to put up with. But for her, it was like, hey, that's hilarious.
0: Well, I- in, in real life, Catherine Deneuve talked about this, about how all the stuff she put up with and, you know, so what? Deal with it, right? So there is definitely a generational divide there.
1: Well, it leads me to this question about, about feminism and your view on it. And you write in the book – about how you and your friends, before you graduated, you wrote down on pieces of paper where your careers would be, what, five years later or ten years yep. later? When you go on to write, my friends and I didn't consider ourselves, quote, feminists. That was something of a dirty word among many young women at the time, conjuring images of man-hating women who didn't shave their legs. And then next paragraph you write, yet three decades later... The world hasn't turned out all as we had imagined. We were we were wrong in our cavalier attitude toward toward feminists, those women who had sacrificed so much so that we could unthinkingly expect we could have it all. Not only were we wrong, but by assuming their fight wasn't our own and assuming their battles were over, we inadvertently lost some of their hard-earned gains.
0: Yeah, we, we did, without question, there were, you know, we went out into the world thinking all would be equal— You know, we were the equals or betters of our male colleagues at school, and so we expected we would go into the future, and if you were to fast forward 30 years, we would all be equally, you know, running companies and caring for children, and and of course that didn't happen, and now all of us have kids, and our kids are now, you know, entering adulthood in a world where they're facing some of the exact same issues that we faced three decades ago. And so you know that on the one hand is very dispiriting, um, and and you would hope that things would be different by now, and 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 that's the one thing that does worry me a little bit about this Me Too movement. I mean, I think there's two ways this could go. Um, you know, the the you know after Anita Hill in 1991, we all thought the world was going to change, and th- that would be the end of sexual harassment. And of course, that turned out not to be the case at all. Um, so, you know, there is this concern that there could be a backlash against Me Too, um, that, uh, and in particular, if you have men who are now threatening to say, well, I don't want to talk to women, I don't want to mentor women, I don't want to hire women, because it's, you know, I might be accused of something, right, If, if that becomes the outcome, that would set us back years, if not decades, in terms of workplace equality. And so we have to fight really hard to make sure that that doesn't happen, But I do think that on the other side of the equation, the positive outcome and the one that I'm that that's what she said is intended to help promote is the idea of making the issues of workplace equality discussable among everyone, of understanding real life solutions to the problems of real life actions that we can all take and and bringing us together to actually solve the problems. Because if we do that, then that is a, a legacy that could last and actually could finally make a real difference in, um, in in workplace equality for many, many years to come.
1: Joanne Lippman, former editor-in-chief of USA Today and author of That's What She Said, What Men Need to Know and Women Need to Tell Them About Working Together. Thanks very much for being here.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.
0: If you like Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, you should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Can He Do That?, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Retropod, a daily show for history lovers featuring surprising stories about the past, Rediscovered. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com podcasts. The Washington,
1: Washington, Washington, Washington Post. Post.